the day begins. A man wakes up, makes up his mind. Today he won't grind, today he'll shine. To how to scrape the ground, to fly to face the clouds. No spinning earth allowed. To ground and get astounded. No following the crowd, only leaps and bounds. When you calling for the crown, calling for the crown. When you calling for the crown, calling for the crown. When you calling for the crown, calling for the crown. Okay. Hello, everybody. We are back. And for our next series in this season, Fortune's Wheelhouse is going to be doing 10 numeric episodes, going from 1 to 10, which, um, as we were just discussing off air, is challenging. I don't know about you, but I mean, I've sort of been preparing on and off for a few days. And I, I keep thinking, I wish we could do this in 10 years when I'm smarter or like, get a brain transplant or a couple doctorates yeah. or something. <laughs> Especially when you start with one, which is literally everything and nothing. You yes. know, it's sort of like you get into areas of math and philosophy and religion that I feel a little bit out of my depth, to be honest. Yeah. I know we were just talking about we should have started at 10 and worked our way up to, to deity. Oh God. <laughs> but what can you do? We'll make it through the first few numbers before we probably will have to take a little bit of a break in January to finish up the Fortune's Wheelhouse book. But then we'll pick up. Okay, so this is officially episode number one of the numeric series. Uh, which means that we'll be dealing with, of course, the four aces of tarot among the minors. Uh, we'll be dealing with majors that are numbered one or reducing to one. So I guess that means the magician and the wheel of fortune. Also, we should include the fool because you can't mm. really talk about one, especially Kabbalistically, without talking about zero, at least a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you really can't. And there isn't any other place to talk about the fool. So... So I guess we kind of have to. And um, yeah, speaking of Kabbalistically, we'll also be talking about the first Sephira, Keter, which, of course, connects to the fool and the magician, or Magus, as well as the high priestess. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. Well, except, you know, for court cards, mm. the princesses mm. go with 10, but they also go with one. So mm. there's there's kind of that the princess and ace thing right because that we could the, touch on and then maybe the do the them of the officially with the tens or something. Yeah. All right. So I guess here we go. Uh <laughs> we have kind of an outline. Um so I guess we'll just sort of dive right in with trying to talk about the one. One thing that I thought might be kind of interesting to look at is the idea of the symbol of one as the point within the circle. And mm -hmm. uh, I saw a really good description of how that graphic works. I think it was in The Magician's Companion by Bill Whitcomb, where you kind of can think of it as the infinite void becoming aware of itself, because we'll be talking a lot about awareness and non-awareness in this episode. So the, the infinite void expands to create a space which is not itself. And that's that's the circle. And then it contracts to fill that space with itself. And that's the point within the circle. And that causes it to become everything and nothing, which is that graphic of the point within the circle, which we also use to mean the sun. Um, and yeah, in that, general, we often use it for totality. That symbol is really interesting because like, I've also seen it described as the egg and the serpent. So mm. the, the, the point in the center being the egg and the uh, circle around it being the Ouroboros, the serpent, and coiling the egg, which kind of is a neat thing because it has a lot to do with creation. And and then the symbol itself is the symbol for the sun, which is one of the cards that reduces to one. It also looks like an axle and a wheel, which the wheel is another one of the uh, cards that reduces to one. And um, then you could also think of it as the sun with Mercury orbiting it. And we've got the Magus, which is the card that is the one. So it's kind of neat that that one symbol really speaks to all three of those cards that are are one cards. I think there is this idea of unfolding uh, from the point in this figure. And the Pythagoreans called this the monad, the idea of the absolute. So that point within the 
confinement of the circle is supposed to contain everything that will come later. So when we're talking about everything and nothing, what we mean is that like uh, within this sort of like compact package, the everything is contained. And we see that both in Kabbalah and in the um, expansion of that point into whether it's the swastika or the uh, the equal-armed cross that brings us from everything as the source to everything as the product, the earth itself. There's a lot to dive into here. I was looking at this, you know, sacred geometry series that talks about the creation of the universe in terms of, you know, Genesis. Mm -hmm. So it starts out, like you said, with nothing, chaos. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in that, the point is supposed to be, you know, like you can imagine either blackness or you can imagine, you know, like a snow on a TV screen. Mm -hmm. It's just chaos. And then at some point, awareness crystallizes into a point which you can imagine like an eye suddenly in that chaos opening up and becoming aware. Yeah, I think that in all of these stories, all of these cosmogonies, we always have that sort of moment of transition from chaos, void and lack of awareness to something right to awareness of and and I guess because we have a, a great deal of difficulty conceptualizing what that nothingness might be. In some models, we have, you know, various stages of nothingness to get us closer <laughs> to that point. So like the three veils of the tree of life, Ein, Einsof, and Einsof, or... Well, it was um, this, to continue that, that geometry thing, how you start with that, you know, that awareness, that point in the center, and then it described it as being the, like a compass, so you know, the point of the compass is that center, and then it defines an area around itself, mm -hmm. making the circle, and you have the, the point in the circle. So it, it described creation as the this, like, either three or fourfold series of geometries where the first step had to do with the ratio between one and pi, or the circle, and, you know, its diameter. Mm -hmm. So, but then that point, it said, so you know, by defining this circle around itself, it was really defining a sphere around itself. But in two dimensions, it looks like a mm -hmm. circle point, yes. point in a circle. But that eye is basically shooting out beams of awareness, like forward, backward, up, down, you know, left, right, all the four directions and above and below. So these like six points of awareness, and it defines this, this circle around itself of, I guess you would call it, consciousness. If you looked at it in two dimensions, what it that it ends up looking like is a circle with a point divided into four, like the symbol of Malkut. That was the stage of, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's like the definition of the world, the awareness trying to define itself, yes. something like that. Yeah. And, and then it, it goes on to say, you know, the world's brought into order. And that's that division into that what looks like the Malkut symbol, um, but it's really not two-dimensional. It's really has the other dimension of above and below, just like the Cuba space. Basically, the other stages are, so the first one was the, the ratio between one and pi, and that was this circular thing. And then there was the ratio between one and the square root of two. And supposedly in that stage, you know, that corresponds to Genesis where God divided the world into light and darkness, into, you know, above and below the firmament and the waters. And when you look at the sacred geometry image of that stage, it, the square that's within the circle, if then a circle is drawn within that square that's inside of the outer circle, that new circle has the area that is, is exactly half of the area of the original circle. So that supposedly corresponds to the division into equal parts of, you know, light and darkness above and below, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Then the, the next stage is the ratio of one to the square root of three. And in that stage, the, um, the circle inside of the other circle that's inside of the square, um, it has a, Two triangles like the star of David, you know, the mm -hmm. um that mm -hmm. and that stage is uh the where hexagram. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So 
that's the uh, like the the final stage where the waters are in one place and the dry land appears in in uh, mm-hmm. Genesis story. Anyway, I thought it was really interesting just to see it visually as geometry. This story, yeah, uh, yeah. Do you have a source where people can see that or look it up? Uh, I do. It's a book called How the World is Made, The Story of Creation According to Sacred Geometry by John Mitchell with Alan Brown. Mm. And it's a really beautiful book because it's got, you know, all these sacred geometry illustrations in it, beautifully done and colored. And it's a cool book. Mm. But that same story of of Genesis as being a, a story of geometry it goes back to Plato, you know, uh, the Timaeus. So it's an old concept. You know, some of the concepts we'll be talking about in this episode about the one have to do with, you know, the difference between the manifest and the non-manifest, that which is happening within time and that which is outside of time, and also uh, that which can be known and that which is unknowable. But I think that all of these kind of tie back to this central concept of the universe as awareness, the universe as mind, the idea that without consciousness, there is no universe, which, you know, seems like a very broad and obvious statement. But when you think about it, that is something that we resist as human beings, the idea that the universe is conscious, and yet it is the basis of every religious system, the idea that there is awareness that's uh, that's a single mind across all living things. The idea of one is all and all is one. Right. And that the, the idea that we're all fundamentally connected, which we lose in the materialist era, uh, which is useful to remember when we're trying to do, whether it's divination or magic or any kind of work that goes beyond physical causes. One thing I thought would be kind of interesting to think of in terms of that, and we'll talk about it more when we get to two, I suppose, is the principle of non-dualism. You know, there's this idea in the philosophy of meditation that you go from kind of normal awareness, which is inherently dual, to pure awareness, which is inherently non-dual. So normal awareness, meditative awareness, pure awareness, kind of those three steps. And, you know, I think when we get to two, we'll talk about the idea of the observer and the observed. You know, they're always a watcher and something that is watched. But here, that separation doesn't exist. Uh, It's self-aware, but not separate. One is obviously by definition it's unique but um <laughs> that's that's a joke uh there's actually there's actually another funny joke the it's kind of like a greek philosopher joke where there's two classes of numbers and one and all the rest um, <laughs> because i mean it's interesting because every number builds from one you know adding yeah. plus one the next number arises out of it but it's not just through addition, it's also through division, because if you take one and divide it, you get two. If you take, you know, one of those pieces and divide it, you get three, and then the other one you get four, and et cetera. So it's it's yeah. either through addition or through division, but either way, it's it's based on ones. Yeah, and in a way, this is like the hardest number to get a hold of, literally. If mm-hmm. you look at um, the Nabel's arrangement, Crowley's idea of the unfolding of the tree of life, you know, he, he kind of talks about Keter, Hokma, and Bina as all variations on the point itself. Like Keter is yeah. the point, and positive calls, yet indefinable. Yeah, undefinable. And that's interesting because, so if you go back to that symbol of the dot within the circle, that can also, you can also think of that as the axis of the world. Or it, yeah. it, but if you think of the idea of an axis of, of anything, like use the earth for an example, the earth is revolving around this central point, but it's mm. undefinable because that point is, the earth is also revolving. So that mm-hmm. point is not a constant. It's, it's, right. It's the unmoving right. center, but it's also moving. But it's also so moving. it can't be defined. <laughs> it's it's dimensionless. Yes, and actually, this sort of sequence of the positive yet indefinable point, and then the next one is the point distinguishable from one other, and the next one is the point defined by relation to two others. 
that's something that's related to his concept of zero as well. The, the three veils, zero absolute, mm-hmm. zero is undefinable, zero is basis of possible vibration. You know, it's sort of just the attempt to conceptualize nothing turning into something. But I think what you're saying about the unmoved mover, that's really interesting, too, because the concept of Keter, of course, is related to the prima mobile. So so while the lower Sephirot are connected with the seven traditional planets, up here among the supernals, we have you know, this outermost concentric sphere in the concentric Ptolemaic model is supposed to be occupied by prima mobile, which is that which gives motion to everything else. It's not a particular body. It's the concept of motion. Right. Is, motion yeah. itself. That comes from the notion that our predecessors had, the belief in apparent motion. So the idea that, you know, sun goes around the earth, moon goes around the earth, etc. Right. Et that point is the point of the one or the or Keter or is not, I guess it's not motion itself, but it's the point from which motion is measured. Because well, in order to have motion, you have to have a something to relate it to. You have to have something to relate it to. And, you know, they really puzzled as to how motion was generated in the first place, if it was from the mind of God or from the first swirlings of inchoate matter. But I think when you talk about the idea that the point within the center cannot be located absolutely, I think that is a more you know, modernized way of thinking about that first motion, you know, the idea that it's not located in some, you know, outer shell of the walnut kind of thing, but that it's everywhere and nowhere. The other thing that's kind of neat and unique about one is, well, technically, it's considered an odd number. Mm -hmm. You know, there's odd numbers and even numbers. One is unique in the sense that the uh, Pythagoreans considered it both masculine and feminine, unlike any of the other odd numbers because it had the power to make an odd number even and an even number odd. Yes. If you add it to anything, it produces its opposite. So they considered it androgynous. Yeah. Um, And that makes a lot of sense when you consider that it is the source for everything else. mm -hmm. Um, Not on either side of, of force or form. It's middle pillar. If I remember right, I remember reading that they didn't see one as a number. It was the seed or the generator of all numbers. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting in when we consider that in relationship to the aces. You know, they're it's not that, the element. They're the seed of the element or the root exactly. of the element. It's where everything comes from, but without being necessarily manifest itself. Yeah. Yeah. Energy without form. I, I don't remember who I'm quoting when I say that, but it's the same idea. You know, that idea of the constant, but you know, dimensionless fixed point at the center and, and the symbol of the point in the circle will be, you know, really familiar to Thelemites with yeah. the idea of Hadith and Nui. I'd like to kind of tie it a little bit more closely to the Tree of Life model, since that's going to be basic to the way we discuss the cards. The model that we use, the Golden Dawn model and Crowley's model, you know, has the Prima Mobile as associated with Keter, but I've also seen folks trying to tie it into the modern scheme of astrological rulership. I've I've seen Keter as Neptune, for example, which yeah. is interesting. I, I, I could not bring myself to use that. <laughs> a, I do not see that Keter as Neptune in it's many ways. To... But, but, but what I have noticed is that the outer planets are almost interchangeable between the top three, you know, Sephiro. Because, you know, they contain their contradictions within themselves. So I don't think that the outer planets can be assigned and pinned in the same way. I don't think so either. upper Sephiroth than uh, the lower. It's, it's very different. It's very different. They're not different. definable in that way. And I think in general, I understand the impulse. We actually had a good question from a listener this week asking about, what about Uranus, Neptune, Pluto? You know, I understand the impulse to use those outer planets and try and integrate them into the magical models we have. However, we've had like 
2,000 years of, of magical history that revolves around the seven classical right. planets. The two I think at one time, five. Neptune was assigned to Keter because it was the outermost known planet. Well, now Pluto is the outermost known planet. And if it's you, know, planet. you could make an argument for Uranus being Keter because of the yes. airy association and the fool. You could make an association with Uranus being Dot because of its kind of like explosive exactly. and unexpected and unknown nature i mean there's all sorts of arguments but it's too fluid and i don't think it works (laughs) i don't think it works either and you see it actually quite a bit in the newer tarot uh major arcana sometimes you'll see people try and assign the outer Mm. planets also to the majors you know so for example i think anything with anything above the abyss you can't pin a planet to it it's because because it's so contradictory and there's there's just no definite attributions of in that same sense except for bina being saturn the one exception. Yeah. yeah, so Cantor itself, of course, means crown, and that's a very stable definition. There's not much shading to it. And it's interesting that Keter and Malkut, the, the top and bottom sephirot of the tree, are the two words that are simply objects. Everything else is an abstract concept, you know, wisdom, glory, splendor, understanding. They all are taken as uh, attributes of God from a particular scriptural verse. But the crown and the kingdom are separate and different. Yeah, and there's that connection they have with each other. Like one of the things that I noticed when I was going through the correspondences is that the archangel for Keter, Metatron, is the same as for Malkut. And that's the only case where that happens. I noticed that as well. It is really interesting. And... um, Keter, of course, it's interesting because it has that relationship with Chokmah where they are both correspond to the Yod, the first letter of the divine name, but Keter only has the topmost or the tip of the Yod, whereas mm. Chokmah has the rest of it. And, and we talked about this once in another episode, but that if you took the Yod and made it a three-dimensional object and yes. rotated it so you're looking down at the tip, you get the you point, get the in, point the in the circle. Exactly. It also is interesting because, you know, the tip of the yod refers back to that idea of contraction, the idea that the divine had to contract to make space for itself to unfold. You know, this sort of action of chaos turning into something always involves expansion and contraction first. Uh, The idea of tzimtzum, which we see in both Hermetic and Lurianic Kabbalah, the idea that uh, the divine is too almighty, too too great to permit room for anything else. So it has to make itself like a little bit smaller. And that's the idea of the point. Mm. Yeah, I've also seen, and I can't remember where I ran across this, that if you think about Keter Hakama Bina, you can think of that as the source, the current, and the sea. So the source in the in the idea the idea that, you know, um all things must mm-hmm. come from someplace, but the current is Hakma as directionality, right? Right, as force. Mm-hmm, as force. And then the C is the container of what that force produces. Right, or form. Or yeah. form, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Keter is also known as the long face, the long countenance, or macro prosopis. Um, oh, it's got so many cool titles. It's, yeah. Uh, they're yeah. all like Zen koans. Yeah. The... The existence of existences, the concealed of the concealed, the ancient (laughs) of ancients, the ancient of days, the smooth point, the primordial point, the most high, the vast countenance, the head which is not. (laughs) (laughs) Which that's interesting because if you think about it's not the head, Keter is not the head, it's the crown. It's the crown. It's above the head. If you're looking at the Adam Cadman. Uh, Hokma and Bina are the two sides of the head. Keter is above the head. That's right. So, There's something that is um, not mappable about it. Right. The inscrutable height. <laughs> right. Those references to the bearded long face um, have to do with this. Well, it's a medieval Kabbalistic idea that the Hermeticists picked up on the idea that by kind of anthropomorphizing the Sephirot, you can conceive of them as helping each other to restore the fallen world of the Klippot, the shards of the Tree of Life. So for that reason, the um, the long countenance, the Arich Anpin, or the Macroprosopis is sometimes also known as infinite patience. Keter can be known as infinite patience because it has to do with like this endless, timeless process of restoring the tree. Mm. 
also, and the fact that the mm-hmm. the the symbol is that bearded head, yeah. it's always in profile, which is interesting because you only see the right side of yes. that bearded face, and the left side of the face is in darkness, because that's the the side that faces the three veils of right the nothing negative existence that we can know nothing about. Nothing about nothing about nothing. (laughs) Yeah. But it always made me wonder. So we see that bearded face in profile and we don't see the other side of the face. And then when you get to Hokma, it's also a bearded face, but it's seen Mm -hmm. front on. Right. And that's where, you know, Keter divides into its masculine half. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that makes me wonder, is the dark side that we can't see, is that a feminine side or, or not? I wonder. Yeah, it does make you wonder. Now, Be- because these, it's androgynous. What you're talking about by the, the bearded face and profile, that's the magical image of Keter. Is and the dark we... side of the moon female? <laughs> yes, yes. Do we know where the magical images of the Sephirot originate? I don't. I mean, I think it's a hermetic Kabbalah thing. I think it's probably a 19th century thing, but I'm not 100% sure. So I'd, I'd love to hear from anyone who actually knows that. But maybe while we're at it, we can talk about some of the other hermetic attributes of the Sephira, you know, the virtue and vice, the vision, weapon, those sorts of things. All that stuff. All that stuff. I mean, there are actually so many correspondences and we, you know, we're not going to hit them all, but we can kind of do the greatest hits. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We'd be here all day if we tried to do all of those and all the cards. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which actually, if you're starting with one, it's all the cards. So it's we, all we can't cards. go there. <laughs> oh, by the way, so for the listener's benefit, if you would like to see all the correspondences, I found a website where you can look them up for fun. It's uh, servantsofthelight.org. And if you just search on their site for each Sephira intern, you'll see all of the uh, correspondences as well as the cards associated with them. Oh, speaking of all the cards, you know, mm-hmm. when you look at that point inside a circle, even mm-hmm. though it's round, it kind of reminds you of a die, you know, a dot on a, on the face of a die. Did you know that there are 21 combinations to a pair of dice? So that's kind of perfect, right? Cool. And then there's 21 actual dots on a single die. And if, oh, and shit, if you really? add <laughs> and if you add up 1 through 21 the digits it adds to 78. Of course it does. Wow. So, that's yeah, crazy. So, that's anyway, crazy. I, I did thought that was kind of kind of cool. Yeah, that's that's wild. So the virtue and well there is no vice in There Keter. is no vice for for <laughs> Keter or Hokma. I guess they're above vices. Uh, I I've, I've seen some people attribute a vice to Hokma, but it's it's um disputed. Yeah. Anyway, the virtue is the completion of the great work or attainment, ultimate the ultimate attainment, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the vision is union with God, yes. union with the divine. Whereas the zero, the vision is the supreme attainment, because I guess, you know, obviously yeah. you can't go any <laughs> further than zero. Do not pass go. <laughs> right. I think Crowley has the weapon as the crown. Crown. I've seen. I've seen a couple different things. So I've seen the crown. I've seen the swastika, and I've seen reference to the lamp as well. The yeah, idea. Yeah, that's of something the light, that Israel Redardi of- did after yep. he kind of expanded the Golden Dawn correspondences. Israel Redardi came up with the idea of the lamp as the weapon of Keter, meaning the spiritual light or real self. Those concepts are so hard to get a get a grasp of. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's this idea that. You know, the lamp itself can be kind of a metaphor for this idea of the universe attaining awareness of itself. Right. Let there be light, the creation and all that. Exactly. Exactly. And then the god name associated with Keter is Eheya, which is um, Mm. spelled... I am. Yeah. Aleph, He, Yod, He. And you know, what's really interesting is that sometimes... It's translated as I am, and sometimes it's translated as I will be. So the, Yes, the, I've seen that as well. The phrase I am that I am is... I've seen it as Sarah I Hea. become also, which is similar to right. I will be. And the reason that you get those two translations, I actually went down a little wormhole again, is that in classical Hebrew, the, it's based on what they call aspect rather than tense. So we have tense, grammatical tenses like future, past, present. But aspect is continuing versus 
finished. So what is known as the imperfect aspect, meaning the not finished aspect, is what Eheya is in. So it means that it's continuing. It's not only that it's that it is, but that it's going to be, or yes. that it was, and it still is, and it's going to be. And that's a really important concept, actually. Um, and it kind of makes sense that I am or I will be is right at the top of the tree. Because when we talk about creation on the tree of life, I think a really fundamental principle is not that it's something that is created, and therefore done, but that it's constantly unfolding. Creation is an ongoing process. It is yes. itself in an imperfect aspect. Without so, beginning and without end. Yeah, without end. And it's sort of like that is the nature of something that's a seed. It's unfolding, but it doesn't die because when it comes to the end of one cycle, it simply starts another. Right. Yeah, that idea of the one as a seed and the rest of the numbers as a tree, you know, the oak and the acorn and that contains another oak that contains more acorns that contains more oaks. That contains yeah, more acorns. It's a real chicken and egg problem, which I think this. is, you know, why, why we have such difficulty getting from zero to one conceptually, because it okay. shouldn't be just basically one to one to one to one, you know, it should be like just itself repeating endlessly, both forward and back in time. You know, going back to the, uh, Hey, when, mm-hmm. you know, the Aleph, Hey, Yod, Hey, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Tetragrammaton, how it has yeah. two Hays in those two positions, and yeah. it's kind of a fourfold name. And it, it was making me think about how when they talk about the idea of divinity or God or unity, it's usually divided either threefold or fourfold. Mm-hmm. And so you think of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, there's a fourth that isn't usually talked about, and that's the destroyer. And, you know, then then there's some that try to relate the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to the supernals, which would make the destroyer da'at, right. I guess. Right. But really, I think the better way to, to div- instead of putting Father, Son, Holy Ghost in the supernals, it would be more Father would be Keter, Son would be Tiferet, Jeez, Holy Ghost would probably be Esod and the destroyer. <laughs> would be yes, Malkut, I think I've right? actually seen that. Yeah, I've seen yeah. it mapped that way. One other concept I'd like to introduce is the four worlds concept while we're at it, just because. Yeah, because you know, um, Keter is all alone up there in Atsuluth, isn't it? <laughs> well, it can be, although you know the one and only, the one and only. Usually, absolutely. You can also see the supernals as Atsuluth. That I think Wang has it like that in Hermetic Kabbalah. You should um. You should play for for the music. One is the loneliest number. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great idea. Yeah, and absolute literally just means nearness, which is interesting, like proximity, right? Whereas uh, the other ones, Bria, Yetzira, Asiya, they're all forms of creation. Like Bria is like that which is created. Uh, Yetzir is that which is formed. And Asiya is that which is made. I mean, these are approximate translations, but Atsilut is just like nearness. It's like sort of there. <laughs> right. It's not, it's not made of anything or it's not, nobody had a hand in forming this thing. By proximity, I guess we mean proximity to the source, proximity to the divine. And you can never get there, which is why you're only ever near it. Right. The colors of Keter <laughs> are funny because they're yeah. not really colors until you get to a sea. Yeah, so there's the, you know, the golden dawn scale colors, which are all basically forms of light, I guess. So king scale is brilliance. And then he, for queen scale and prince scale, it's just they're both white brilliance. So it's basically just brilliance a little bit more defined with the addition yeah. of white. And then uh, it's not it's not until you get to the princess scale that you you have white flecked gold, which is, um, you know, gold is supposedly an indication of the connection with Tiferet and the holy guardian angel and the sun and Tiferet as being the highest that man can really achieve. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, when they say brilliance, I think what we're trying to get at is that this is not something that you can really perceive with your human eyes. Right. It's <laughs> not know. color. It's a colorless luminosity. Right. It's not white. Although yeah. white is our best approximation for it, which is why right. when you see the Briotic representation of the Sephirot in the traditional colors, Keter always looks like white. 
But it's really concealed light is what it is, which kind of makes me think of the priestess card that connects to the path, the idea of something being concealed and what's being concealed is the 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 light the holy of holies yeah because you can't see it (laughs) right (laughs) yeah and also i think that idea of concealment the concealed of this concealed it's it's everywhere um but also that ancient bearded face and profile you know we can't see one side of it and that's another expression of the same thing Mm. now one thing i'm just going to mention for for future is that there is a system that associates notes with the 10 um, sephirot and those notes are based on color so once right. we get down to to bina and the colors below that we'll be able to have actual notes but but here the dog right here above the, <laughs> yeah there's like nothing there's like you know the right. sound of si- creation sound of silence yeah the sound of silence yeah As some people say it's silence um some people say it's the lost chord which is this hilarious 19th century construct uh that had to do with a song that this composer wrote which was extremely popular actually probably in early 20th century anyway so you know this idea that there's this this sound that that is beneath the um, instead of a dog whistle it's the god whistle <laughs> yeah, the god whistle. oh my god that's hilarious uh, hey isn't there like in in terry pratchett one of his books about death there is a chord that death can play because death is like a rock star guitarist that, that do- sounds familiar yeah a, a chord that death plays that basically unmakes the universe <laughs> something like that anyway that seems like it would be appropriate for Ketter. So maybe we should talk a little bit about tarot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so do you want to do like majors by number or do you want to do majors by Sephira? Majors by number, I guess. And okay, then and then, number, yeah. then we'll talk about paths that come out of, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, made, we're going to talk about the magus in both of them. So, so we've got fool because where else are we going to talk about the fool and we've got magus or magician and we've got wheel of fortune and the sun and the sun i forgot to write the sun duh circle in the dot circle in the dot of course 19 uh, in case anyone's wondering reduces one plus nine ten yeah one plus zero equals one so it's all about one and zero binary numbers uh that's that's really interesting because I think one way to think about the numbers, the ordinal numbers of the the majors, which are in some sense kind of arbitrary, but they've kind of been codified over time, is to see, you know, there are different representations of what the energy of the source, you know, in the fool, the fool, of course, is like the essence of traveling from the source to the non-source, from the known to the unknown, from the world that is beyond comprehension to something that is within comprehension. And of course, the fool himself is defined by not comprehending anything. <laughs> yes. So um, that is that is what the fool means. So that's Oh, this is a little bit of a di- digression. Yeah. But when we were talking about numbers themselves as shapes and stuff, the only shapes that you can draw with one line are the circle, mm-hmm. obviously, and the lemniscate or circle or oval, I guess it doesn't have to be perfectly round. Yeah. But, uh, and the lemniscate, which is interesting, Even it's with one, a single one continuous line. line. You ever see the Mobius trick where you make a, a strip, a Mobius strip yeah. on paper, and yeah. if you take your pencil and you start in one point and you follow it all the way, you'll connect back. But yeah. then when you take it apart, your, your line is on both sides of the paper. Yeah, that's cool. I have yeah, it's pretty trippy. Okay, now like everybody pauses their podcast and gets a strip of paper. Right. <laughs> so, um, but that's cool because that's you know that's one of the symbols that we see on the the Magus card. It is the lemniscate. Is form or another the the Mobius strip. This is interesting. If you look at the Mobius strip and imagine it in three dimensions and look down on it from the top, it might look like a circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, he's, of course, doing the whole as above, so below. So it's sort of like that is a, a flow model for the source energy in a line, uh, the idea that it travels like a current from above to below, whereas the Wheel of Fortune, our, our cosmic reset button or <laughs> on button, is kind of a representation of the idea that that source energy is neither lost or gained. It is conserved. You know, it is constantly 
um, being regenerated and renewed. I was looking somewhere uh, down a wormhole last night that the idea in the Orphic tradition, in, in Orphism, the idea of metempsychosis, the reincarnation of the soul, supposedly the eternal soul was supposed to have 10 rounds of being in the mortal body before it got free. So I thought huh. that was kind of interesting. That's kind of interesting. And did they correspond to the Sephirot? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but it was interesting that they settled on 10, you know? Right. Yeah. That seemed to me like a very Wheel of Fortune type model. It's and interesting course- to look at those four cards, you know, yeah. the Fool, the Magus, the Wheel, and the Sun as a progression. Yeah. Different yeah. ways of saying, expressing that one energy. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, especially I think the sun, it's because it's it is a source as well, but it's mm-hmm. local. <laughs> and it's it's a center. Personal. Yes. Yeah, it's our own star. There's something that's a progression from the unrelatable to the relatable from the, the mm-hmm. fool to the mm-hmm. magician to the wheel to the sun. You know, it's like, we know what the sun is, to something concrete that we can kind of grasp. And it is in our real world, that which is the source of all life. Yeah. And it's the only thing in our universe that comes close to being a perfect expression of pi is the the, mm. the view of the sun from Earth. Mm. It's really hard to achieve a perfect circle in mm. reality. Like, you know, the equator is probably on Earth is the closest thing that we can comprehend where then, you know, the... The sun is what we can see. That's the closest thing that's going to be a perfect mm-hmm. circle. And then we can look at the majors by their connection to Keter, the three majors coming off of Keter. We have um, the fool, which goes from Keter to Chokma, the magician going from Keter to Bina, and then the um, priestess going from Keter to Tiferet. Yeah, it kind of makes a symbol of a big arrow, doesn't it? <laughs> it kind of does, pointing up. Oh. <laughs> this way. This way up. <laughs> this way up. In terms of paths, though, you can almost consider like every single path, because if you go with the um, yeah the path of the serpent that, you know, touches yeah. every single path that, that with the, where the head starts with the fool's path and Keter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, we can't cover all of them. No, that's true. Then there's the lightning path, you know, that you Right, could, the zigzag. Mm-hmm. You could you could count those as that's perhaps, true. but we'll just stick with the ones that are that are stuck to Keter. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out what these three cards, the Fool, the Magus, and the Priestess, have in common. And I guess the, the best I could do was to sort of think of them in relationship to awareness and non-awareness, known and unknown. Uh, we talked about that with the Fool already, the uh, the idea that he knows nothing, but he is the first step in any direction. And Hochma itself has sort of ideas of directionality embedded in it. But, you know, sort of like when you take any step from the North Pole, you're now walking in a direction from undefined to defined. Then if you look at the magician going from Keter to Bina, we're going from something that is unknowable to something that is real. I mean, in Bina, we always have concepts of the real that we have to take into account something that is formed and and tangible. That's something we we really see in all concepts associated with the magus, the as above, so below, the idea in magic that you're trying to make something unmanifest reflected back into reality. And then with the priestess, you know, from Keter to Tiferet, there is certainly these aspects of what's unknowable referenced all over in the priestess, the idea that there's the hidden scroll, you know, the things that you cannot know and cannot express, the idea that you're crossing the abyss, you know, which is the gulf between the supernals and the lower sephirot, the gulf between what is expressible and what is not expressible, is a journey that the priestess takes, in a sense. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's done in undercover of Darkness. (laughs) You can see almost the same thing you just described with those three cards, just expressed in their numbers alone. Mm. You know, 
the zero, the one and the two. So the zero as, you know, all potential, both nothing and everything, all potential, Mm -hmm. the one as unity, and then the two as duality or reflection, that connection between what's above the abyss and below the abyss, that reflection of, you know, the divine into the mundane. I think in The Priestess in particular, it's such a profound card because it connects from Keter to Tiferet. And I think because there's this idea that if only we could connect to the source, we would be able to achieve harmony and beauty represented by Tiferet. And that the path to doing that is somehow hidden and secret. All right. um, Shall we talk about aces? Yeah, why not? Let's talk about aces. I think we talked a little bit about what Crowley said before, the idea that it's the seed of everything, but Mm -hmm. itself not manifest. Right. It's not the element itself. It's the root or seed of the element pre-manifestation. Pre-manifestation. That's one of the reasons that the aces among the numeric minors really are special and different. They're they're not mapped the way the two through ten are onto the decans. Um, they're not they're not specifically related to any kind of astrological material exactly, except for the elements. I guess we can sort of talk about them as being pinned to the seasons, um, and we can kind of in the projection of the tarot onto the globe, we can kind of see them as, I think the Golden Dawn likes to talk about them as revolving around the North Pole. But at the same time, that always feels a bit overdetermined to me. I mean, I think they kind of exist outside of these sort of systems that we can name because they are source material. Yeah, they're just like, they're like the fool. It's And it, it, that also highlights this you know, this idea as zero being one and one being zero, you know, mm-hmm. one really being two and all that. <laughs> and zero also being two. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think if you think about the way that this idea of the ace being kind of like a source or an impulse or more of a, a desire to... A tendency, I think they call a it. A tendency, that's a good way of putting it, than, than a thing itself. You can kind of see how that's inflected through Wands, Cups, Swords, Discs. I mean, in the Ace of Wands, I think we think of it as the will to live, you know, the idea that there's a life force that springs up and then in the Ace of Cups is the impulse towards love, towards sacrifice, towards emotional redemption. Connection, yeah. Connection between the self and everything else. And if the Ace of Wands was natural force, then, of course, we always talk about the Ace of Swords as invoked force. To me, it's always interesting to talk about the Ace of Swords because it kind of comes inherent with ideas of duality in it. You know, it's double-edged. Right. If the Ace of Cups is connection, then the Ace of Swords is division in the sense of, you know, the mind and reason dividing things up into categories. This is the sort of core essential quality of the mind that it, that it does this. This is its impulses to divide, which is a very strange thing to think about in the context of the one, but that's the nature of swords. And it's why they're in, inherently conflictual. And also, I think there's something in terms of the world of Yetzirah and swords, the idea that all of the possibilities and diversity in our real world, the world of Earth, come from that splitting of the sword, the impulse to divide in the Ace of Swords. And then there's an impulse in the Ace of Pentacles towards the real, towards the finite, Mm. you know, towards birth. It's almost like a consolidation again, you know, it the is. division and then the reconsolidation in in earth. Yeah, and in I matter. Often think of the ace of pentacles or discs as being like a clock. It's like you go through the other aces and they're all non-manifest and then you drop into a sea in the into the realm of earth and the clock starts ticking. <laughs> yeah. I almost want to say the impulse to die. The, mm-hmm. the well, once you're born, an it's yeah, you know? that's it. <laughs> that's when it begins. <laughs> You're done for. <laughs> <laughs> yep, the cause of death was birth. All right. So maybe we can talk a little bit, just an overview of what they look, look like in our in our three sets in the Rider Wade Smith and the Thoth and the Tabula Mundi. Yeah, the four aces. aces next to each other. I just wanted to, I mean, we've talked about them quite thoroughly in the Ace episodes themselves, so it's not hugely necessary. But just a quick overview, you know, the only thing I wanted to really say about the Rider-Waite-Smith ones is that they are based, of course, on the Tarot de Marseille images. They're all the right hand 
Um, and that's interesting too. The hand, the idea that they're all these divine hands, which makes you think of the yod again. Yeah, of yod, sure yod hey, vav hey, you know. Sure does. Yeah, and we can dispute whether they should kind of go left to right, once to discs, once to pentacles, or right to left, once to pentacles, since that's Hebrew order. But one interesting thing to consider about that is that there's real symmetry within those four. There's two that sort of represent the palm side of the hand, the wands and the cups, and there's two that represent kind of the back of the hand, the swords and the pentacles, aces. And then you have ones that are grasping the wands and the swords, and then you have ones that are kind of holding balanced on the hand, uh, the cups and the pentacles. So in all of those, we have basically the different separations of the elements. You know, fire and water are one kind of grouping versus air and earth. And then you have another kind of grouping, fire and air versus water and earth. And they're just different ways of conceptualizing those. Yeah, the idea of the um, the I guess you'd call it the active or masculine expressions, the wands and swords being grasped mm-hmm. firmly like that, whereas the the ace of um, cups and discs, the way it's more passively held, yes. like weighted, laying in the hand. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And also in each of these, there is a representation uh, in some way in Rider-Waite-Smith of this whole Keter Malkut thing. So for example, in the Ace of Wands, you have the mountain in the background, which is kind of Malkut. And the uh, Ace of Cups, you have the dove descending, which is in some correspondence systems representative of Keter, spirit descending. And mm-hmm. then Ace of Swords, of course, you've got literally a crown. Got the crown. <laughs> and then in the Ace of Pentacles, you've got the mountains out towards the back, also representative of Malkut. So in in one way or another, you know, you either have a Keter or Malkut representation in each of these aces, kind of tying them together symbolically that way. Yeah, the Ace of Cups is the only one without mountains in it. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Except it does have the um, Malkut as, I guess you could see that that disc in the dove's mouth. The earth disc, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if we look at the Thoth ones, you can really see the radiating effect of Keter in each of the first mm. three. And then, of course, we have the Earth one, the Discs one, which is just different, right? It's always three in one, where the Discs one is solid and contained and not glowing <laughs> like the others. Yeah. Not it doesn't have the same radiating lines. Yeah, and those radiating extending. lines, you know, remind me of the idea of what a crown looks like, right? It's although in the discs one, those I guess you could say those radiating lines are turning in upon itself in mm. a way. Yeah, yeah, I can kind of see that. That one really looks like a seed or a, you know, it really does. It really looks like something you would plant. Pine cones and wood grain and all that is in there. Yeah, yeah, as well as, you know, Crowley's generative organs. (laughs) (laughs) At the center. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that there's something about the way that Lady Frida did those first three that they each really bleed right out to the margins, you know, like it's almost uncontainable except for the Ace of Discs. Although, like all her art kind of extends right to the edge, there is this sort of mass that is collected, um, that has boundaries and borders. You know, I didn't actually print out yours, but always in yours, the triangles of the elements, which we can see in Tabulum Lundi. And I think you did something proportionally with those triangles to create symmetry. Yeah, they all have this um, geometry of circle and triangle. Right. Kind of contained. Right. And because of the triangles represented on those aces, you always have either pointing up or down, this way up, or this way down. Right. <laughs> so again, it's kind of an inherent Keter Malkut reference. Oh, and we were, we said we were going to talk a little bit about um, court cards in the sense that aces are connected to princesses. Yeah. They say the princesses are the thrones of the aces. That idea that what begins in Keter it's, you know, ultimately contained in Malkut or expressed fully in Malkut. And I kind of think of it as the aces as one of the four powers and the princesses as the wielder or the full expression of those powers. Right. Because I think, you know, one thing we can say about this whole unfolding cycle of the ace that we've been talking about is that if the aces are the source and the seed and the root, 
you know, we know that it's continuing. We know they don't come to an end, but they do have to regenerate somehow. And that's the job and, of the princess. Right. They're the, the, the fruit or the flower. Right. Which makes sense because then that's the thing that regenerates the next set of aces. Right. The How next, do you get yeah. from fruit to seed again? Through the princess. Yeah. That yeah. idea. Yeah. Or page, as the case may be. Beginner mind. I tried to think about how aces manifest in real life for me and for others. It's kind of hard because, you know, we're talking about so many cards that we've all drawn so many times. I think in the course of reading for others, I always tell people that the ace presents an opportunity. Mm. You know, it's not something that's handed to you that is done and finished, but it's like a window that or a door that you can go through if you seize it. It's not necessarily an, an indication of that something will happen, but like you said, it's an opportunity for a new expression of whichever uh, suit it is. Yeah, it's potential. Yeah, so if you see the, um, I don't know, Ace of discs say, you know, if I see it in a reading, sometimes I'll say, well, you might have an opportunity or a job offer or something that you would be able to do to improve your financial position. But unless you actually act to take it, it's not real, right? It's not necessarily just going to happen. It's not like winning the lottery and you just get a pile of cash dumped on you. If you were going to like simplify them down to the, the shortest thing you could possibly say, you would probably call the, the Ace of Wands creative potential or will potential and the ace of cups you know love potential or, or connection potential right. the ace of swords would be you know mind potential reason potential new thought potential mm-hmm. the ace of discs would be material potential in whatever form that's likely to take in your situation yeah. you know each of them has a little bit of a little bit of a different spin to it like the ace of wands in general i think manifests as the big yes a lot of time to any question. Yeah, definitely. Just because it has, it gives you the energy, you know, to do the thing, whatever it is. I think all of the aces are almost that in a sense. Yeah, it's interesting. But, you know, what I did try to look up in my own spreadsheet was times when I drew two aces, because to me that ought to be a pretty good um, representation of the energy. And mm. <laughs> I've gotten I've gotten the ace of cups and the ace of swords twice. And on both occasions, I went to sleep and I talked a lot. Both of those things. <laughs> In your sleep? <laughs> no, no, no. Separately, different times. But like, there was a need for me to like, connect with the unconscious, which I thought was a very Ace of Cups thing to do. And then also at other times I would be talking a lot. I could see that for the talking a lot, because in order to talk a lot, unless you're talking to yourself, there has to be a connection (laughs) with another. Yeah, yeah. And the Ace of Swords is just, it's chatty like that. You know, it's just, there's so much going on up top with the Ace of Swords. You know, I really connect the Ace of Swords with the word the power of the word. But I also got the Ace of Swords and the Ace of Discs one time together. And that was a day for ritual and magic. So, you know, it was mm. the combination of the word and the... The act, word and the material, right? the, the matter. The material. Yeah. 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 And the I think word that is, is affecting matter somehow. Yeah. And I think that's what we do in ritual. You know, we bring together the intentionality of the word as and the symbol of the object into something that's magically efficacious and potent. I thought that was kind of interesting. But I've only gotten that combination once because after all, there are 3,003 pairs that you can get. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will never get them all. Anyway, so um, should we try to summarize this puppy? Oh, geez. <laughs> well, let's just like, I guess there are some themes. Yeah, definitely we some themes. We'll just throw a few out there and, and call it done. So uh, the idea of the seed. Yeah, the idea of potential. Yeah, ideas of unity surrounding potential, wholeness, immortality, standing outside time. Creation and beginnings. That's right. So not so standing outside time, but also standing at the beginning of time, conceptions and initiatives, uh, the source. Yeah. Themes of the self, you know, um, the creativity, you know, the creative opportunity, the will. Um, and there's something of the unknowable about it too. For sure, the, unknow- the, not the unknowable, not quite yet manifest, the invisible, the non-manifest. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, you know yeah. what I thought was kind of funny in seven 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 when you're looking at the tables. There's one for the forty Buddhist meditations, and for Keter, 
it was indifference. <laughs> That is <laughs> fantastic. That That's fantastic. Yeah, there's a very the dude abides quality to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the idea that it's a continuous unfolding without without beginning, without end. Yeah, the unmoved mover. The primum mobile, the point within the circle, the non-dual. All right, so let's call this done. <laughs> um, yeah, yep. I think so because, you know, we have already every card that we've talked about has a whole, you know, hour episode exactly associated with it. So. <laughs> if you if you're a glutton for punishment, it's all out there. There's lots yeah. more. Okay, so we'll be back next time. If you liked one, there's more where that came from. See you then. <laughs>